Can we stand together and give God praise? Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, for this day. You know what I think as Americans, we're very spoiled. And we just need to look around the world and remind ourselves of how blessed that we are. Well, thank you for the 10 that said amen. But everybody ought to be saying amen. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't. But I'm going to tell you, if you just look around, you can probably find somebody that doesn't have it nearly as good as you do. We're blessed. Yes, we are. Once again, thank all of you for being here. I just want to introduce a friend to you. This man's name is brother is Pastor Brent Jones. Pastor Jones and I have been friends for a long time, but probably in the last three years, our friendship is growing. And Brother Brent Jones pastors a church in Richland Hills, which is a suburb of Dallas. He started it 21 years ago with nothing. He has two daughters a wife, and a growing church. Where we really reconnected was, how many of you know Ray Garcia? Garcia, Ray Garcia. How many of you know Ray Garcia? Okay. Some of you know Ray Garcia. His mother passed away, and I was officiating at that funeral, and Brother Ray Garcia goes to Brother Brent Jones' church. So Brother Jones came in to be with Brother Garcia, I looked at him and I said, Pastor, what are you doing on Sunday? And he says, um, man, I'm just going to hang out. I said, yeah, I'd love for you to come preach at TPC. Now, this was back probably in 2018. And that was a season I, the Lord was just putting some things in my spirit. And some of you were looking at me as I was preaching it. And you're like, I think this is right, but I'm not sure. And Pastor Jones, without us even talking about it, came in and preached a message. And I had numerous people looking at me as he was preaching. Sister Debbie being one of them, shaking her head because he was saying everything as a confirmation to what I felt like God was speaking through me. And since that time, our relationship has deepened. So he called me the other day and he said, hey, man, what you doing? We just talked. I don't know how even the conversation got to it, but I said, yeah. I said, man, it's hard to believe I'm going to be 55 August the 14th on a Sunday. He said, Wayne, I'm going to come preach for you on your birthday. It's going to be my gift to you and I'm coming for free. I said, I can't beat that deal. So I told David Robinson this story. He said, Pastor, you can't let the man preach for free. We can't let him do that. I said, don't worry. We won't take care of him. But it's the thought that matters, right? So Pastor Brent Jones, this man, I love him. He's real. He's authentic. And he said that the Holy Spirit woke him up at 3.30 last night. 
and told him what to preach today. So, either he's lying to try to make us think he's real spiritual or he's telling the truth. And since I know him as a man of character and integrity, I will tell you he's telling the truth. And I am looking forward to what the voice of the Spirit would say to all of us this morning. Would you welcome my friend, Pastor Brent Jones. Oh, man. (laughs) No, that doesn't happen very often, so that's why I said it. Uh, And, you know, once the message is over, then you can determine, did I hear from God or not? You know? Right? But I love your pastor, and like he said, we, we just started talking back in 2018, and, and man, we were like, we are two square pegs in a bunch of round holes, <laughs> but we think alike. But unfortunately, sometimes when you think uniquely, even though it's biblical, you can't tell a lot of people. The first, the first rule of theology is do no harm. So sometimes you can be Sorry about that. It harms people. Because you can't give people too much truth too quickly. Because what they do is there's so many tacit suppositions underneath your beliefs that you haven't thought about. That if I challenge all of your beliefs at one time, those tacit beliefs will start to crumble underneath and you'll go wide too quick. You go, well, if this isn't true, what about this? What about this? What about this? And the enemy will step in there. And before long, you don't believe anything. So we have, to, we have to be careful as pastors and preachers and ministers. And so I want to be very careful with you today because, um, as I said, God woke me up. And I was going to come in here and I was going to preach. And we was going to snort and shout. And he was going to go, that skinny guy can preach. But he said, no, you can't do that. So... I'm going to do this, okay? All right. Uh, Happy birthday. Happy birthday. We're the same age, by the way. I think I'm about eight months older than you, I guess. I was January 1. I turned 55, and it's just a number, brother. It's just a number. It's just a number. It don't mean nothing. And I got my first, you know, senior discount at the golf course, so I like it too. You know what I mean? Uh you got your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Job. I'm going to be in Job chapter 38, 40, and 42. So we're going to skip around a little bit here. Job 38, 1 through 3. Job 48 through 12. And Job 42, 1 through 6 is where I'm going to start. And let me just give honor to all of you wonderful saints of God. Because without the saints of God, he and I'd be out of work. Thank God for people who listen to us and are patient with us and, and try, to, try to live out what we preach, okay? And uh, I thank God, you know, for all of you. And years ago, when I was starting my church, the former pastor, Brother Hennigan, they adopted me for Christmas for Christ that year and gave us $4,000. So I'm always indebted to this place and the people of God who gave because the church that's standing today is a result of your giving and your grandparents giving and some of your parents giving. So, thank you. All right, Job 38, 
1 through 3. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkened counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will demand of you, and you declare to me. Skip to chapter 40, verse 8. He says, and I'm reading from the Amplified Classic, so it may be a little different than yours. Will you also annul or set aside and render void my judgment? Will you condemn me, your God, that you may appear righteous and justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Since you question the manner of the Almighty's rule, deck yourself now with excellency and dignity of the supreme ruler and yourself undertake the government of the world if you are so wise and array yourself with honor and majesty. Pour forth the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is a proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. If you are able, Job, Chapter 42, verse 1. And Job said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no thought or purpose of yours can be restrained or thwarted. You said to me, who is this that darkens and obscures counsel by words without knowledge? Therefore, now I see I have rashly uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had virtually said to you, What you have said to me, here I beseech you and I will speak and I will demand of you and you declare to me. I had heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I loathe my words and abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. God be my helper for a few moments and please forgive me if I get emotional about this, okay? I may not raise my voice much today. But I'm still preaching, okay? (laughs) But I'm going to preach to you this subject, absent explanations. Absent explanations. All of us have suffered, struggled, and through trial and loss. And there was no explanation. We asked God. We cried. We wept. We prayed. We walked the floors. We said, God, what's going on? Do you know how bad this hurts? Do you know how heavy this is? There was no explanation. One of the most difficult things to do is serve God when we don't understand God. That's to keep praising God when we don't understand what He's up to. And it doesn't make sense to us. And so you're going to have to get comfortable with absent explanations. You're called into a relationship with a God whose thoughts are above your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, infinitely greater than you, you're not going to get your mind around him. And if you find a God you can get your mind around, he's too small. He's not the God of the Bible. (laughs) You're called to trust him. When you don't understand him. That's faith. We always talk about the gift of faith. And faith and miracles and everything. But there's no greater faith. Than laying on your back in pain. Saying God I know you could snap your fingers. And take this pain away. And he doesn't. That's trust. That's the, the Latin word fide. Is where we get faith. Fidelity. It's allegiance. I am 
I have allegiance toward you even when you do stuff that looks unloving to everybody else. And Satan comes along in the midst of it and says, where is your God that you've been praising? Where is this miracle worker you speak of and sing about? Where is he? You remember it was, it was Ezekiel by the river Chabar with the captives. And he said, our captors demanded us a song. They said, sing us a song of Zion. They were, they were mocking them. They were making fun of them. When the enemy demands a song of you in your trial, sing. In his face, sing. Because the song is not about my circumstance. The song is about my Savior. And my Savior doesn't change just because my circumstances are not good. I sing of who he is. He's sovereign and unchanging. And though I may not understand him, I trust him in my storm. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us today. Help me to walk this as you gave it to me this morning. Help me to speak to the hurting and the struggling. Those who've been through times where it doesn't make sense. Let me speak a word to them and let it be a blessing. Let it give them comfort. Let it be an anchor of their soul in the coming trial. I ask you to help me speak what you would have me to say. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. And everyone said amen. Would you clap your hands unto the Lord? Give me praise. You know, some of you guys don't think this is work, so I roll up my sleeve so you, we, you know. You guys right here in the splash zone. <laughs> See, Job is suffering emotionally, physically, financially, but what vexes him more is the psychological confusion and torment. Why? Why? What's going on? All of his complaints and questions can be summarized by two difficulties that weigh on his mind. He is suffering without explanation. He doesn't understand it. It doesn't make sense. His limited knowledge of God and his very archaic view of God do not square with his circumstances. What good reasons could there be for God allowing all this to happen to me? Why, God, why? And the second thing that hurts him is he's suffering without vindication. My friends explanation of my suffering is that I've sinned and I've done something wrong and I brought it on myself and I've searched my life and I've prayed and I can't find anything that would bring this on me but their understanding of you is that there's a direct cause and effect between evil and difficulty evil and trial some of you feel that way about God God being my helper I'm going to disabuse you of that thought about God he said, I want God to prove that I'm innocent sufferer, that I didn't bring this on myself and that I don't deserve this. So I'm suffering without explanation. I'm suffering without vindication. And because of these pressing concerns, Job demands to appear before God to argue his case. 
He said, I wish there was a daysman to stand between us. He says, a mediator. I want an attorney and I want you to come down and tell me what's going on. See, he wants to talk to God face to face. And our text begins with God showing up in a whirlwind. You see, in our modern culture, there's a philosophical objection to God in the face of evil and injustice. And it is this, that if he is all powerful and he is all good, he would not let suffering happen. And since the Bible declares that God is both almighty and benevolent, then the God of the Bible cannot exist. Well, God has a response to that objection. And I'd like to read some of it for you. In Job, Job chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare to me if you have knowledge and understanding. Who determined the measures of the earth? If you know. Or who stretched the measuring line upon it? Upon what were the foundations of it fastened? And who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth and issued out of the womb? When I made the clouds, the garment of it, and thick darkness, a swaddling band for it, and marked it for my appointed powder and set barns and doors. And he said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here are your proud ways will be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Job? It's okay to question God, but don't be surprised that he shows up and asks you some questions. You see, let me, let me give you a little bit of background. Let me stop right here. What brought this message on is, I'm trying to get the timeline right. I think it was 2017 or 2018. My pastor who... I came back to the Lord in 1993. He was my pastor. His 40-year-old daughter had been in church her whole life, locked herself in a storage shell, put a gun to her head, took her life. I was there the morning after this happened. And he's sobbing violently on me, asking me, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, you breathe in and you breathe out. And you put one foot in front of the other. And I said, listen, pastor, whatever you have to tell yourself to comfort yourself in this grief, you tell yourself. Just don't make it a doctrine. I was there at the funeral. I knew her personally. I didn't know that in the later part of her life after her second child that she had got into a great sense of uh, anxiety and couldn't go into public. I, di- I didn't know that. I-, I felt responsible. My wife was close to her babysitter when she was a kid. and We didn't know that she was in that state of mind. And so we, we walked through that tragedy. And then in December of that following year, a young man who had been in my youth group who I married, he and his wife, he was a surgeon. Get called in on a surgery one day and said, I can't, I can't come to surgery. Well, when you do that in that field, they drug test you when you return to work and he failed. They fired him immediately. Here's 10 years of school and residency down the train. He thinks he'll never work again. He spirals into a depression. 
spirals into this depression and one day he gets up and barricades himself in his two kids room a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl and takes their life he opens the door his nurse wife runs in to render aid he goes out in the living room and puts a gun to himself shoots himself I was there at the tape at the house trying to get to her they wouldn't let me in because they don't assume what you say is true so they have to test everybody for gunshot residue and make sure who's the shooter and who did what I did his funeral I taught his funeral and you should have heard the labels that came on that boy monster murderer and I told him I said you better be careful about your your labels because there are people in the Bible that God used who are murderers one of them his name is Moses said you better be careful about your labels I know that's easy and that's easy to take somebody and say he was terrible all the time but see God has this way of loving us in spite of our bad actions he can love the sinner and abhor the sin itself we can't we have to label people if you do it all the time that's what you are no 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 I am not what I do I am what he says I am amen I'm not my failures I am washed in the blood. I am full of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes I live less than what I am, but that doesn't mean that's who I am. They said he's a monster. I said, well, what about the wonderful psalmist David who put Uriah on the front line to kill him? And God said, the Lord has put away your sin and used him. I said, what about the apostle Paul who stood there when Stephen was being stoned and held the garments of the stoners and put people in prison and persecuted? I said, you, you got to be careful what you say. That January 2018, I believe it is, a friend of mine called me, his 32-year-old daughter. She's a pastor's kids. Wasn't living for God at the time. Took a gun. Put it to her. I did her funeral. I did her funeral in January. I looked into their eyes and I looked into those people's eyes. And then in March of that year, a 22 year old boy in my congregation had a brain tumor and he fought fiercely, but he ultimately succumbed to the brain tumor and he would have loved to have a little bit of the time that the other three had given away. (laughs) And the day before his funeral, I found out that my four-year-old great niece, who was a twin, had an inoperable brain tumor. DIPG is what they call it. So I went through this and then in 2020, she succumbed to her brain tumor. (laughs) And I preached her funeral. And the week that she was sick, the week that she was sick, all the ministers came. And right before she got really down, the Lord woke me up again in the morning. And he began to talk to me about her funeral. We were were praying for a miracle. And he began to talk to me about her funeral. I said, God, I think she can be healed. And he said, she's not going to be healed. 
I'm going to take her home. And begin to talk to me about her funeral. And right before the spirit lifted that morning, she used to call me Uncle Brent. Her name was Layla Grace. I heard her voice from behind me. Uncle Brent, she's going to be okay. And so after her death, I opened this book here, Job. And I said, God, I don't, I don't understand this. I said, I don't understand why this minister over here and this minister over here, everybody they lay hands on gets healed and everybody I lay hands on dies. I don't understand why this one over here has got this testimony and this miracle and this miracle and everybody almost that I prayed for. I've had to stand next to their casket and look my own failure in the face. I don't understand. He said, it's okay. He said, I want you to just study this book for a few months. I want you to stay in this book and I'm going to show you some stuff here. And so what God says, this is what jumped out at me. He said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job implies that God's plan is illogical. It's dark. It doesn't make sense. But what God is saying is, Job, how much do you really know? If you know little about the physical creation, what can you know about deeper things? If what you can see and touch and feel and taste is mysterious beyond comprehension, how will you begin to fathom the unseen realm? If you can't understand the material that you appraise with your five senses, what makes you think you can understand the ethereal and the spiritual and the moral universe? It's like a five-year-old arguing with their parents why they can't sleep over with a friend. You have a perspective as a parent they don't understand. Well, that's my friend and I know their mommy and daddy. But what you know is they have an older brother you know nothing about. Right, And so he has a vantage point and a perspective that we can't see. And he makes decisions sometimes based on that. And he doesn't come down to the five-year-old, which all of us are spiritually, and say, look here, honey. This is what's going on behind the scenes that you can't see. See, God is saying, if you believe in me enough to be angry with me because I didn't stop your trouble, then I'm big enough to have reasons to allow it that you could not possibly conceive of. Just because you can't think of a good reason for trials and troubles doesn't mean there's not one. If you have enough faith to believe that God could stop evil and injustice, then why don't you have enough trust to believe that he has an intelligent and a noble and a loving reason for allowing them. Everything that comes into your life comes through those nail-scarred hands. If it's come into your life, God allowed it. Remember, he said, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. Right? So if it's come into your life, you have the character and the faith to sustain yourself in it. If it was too big for you, he wouldn't have let it happen. He wouldn't have let it come to you. 
but he's trying to show you who you are, that he knows you are. But without the trial and without the trouble, you wouldn't believe that you could handle it or keep living for God. And it's in the death and the desolation and the destruction that you find out, yes, I trust God. trying to show you who you are, who he knows you are. Everything comes through those nail-scarred hands. He said, I won't allow you to be tempted for evil beyond what you're able to bear. I won't allow you to be tempted to quit beyond what you're able to sustain and endure. I won't. But if that temptation comes, I will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You got to understand that. See, our problem is as apostolics, and I'm an apostolic, so I'm not throwing any stones, okay? If we live by feeling too much, you got to know some stuff. Because you're not going to feel it all the time, honey. You're not going to feel like getting up and come to church. <laughs> You're not going to feel like worshiping God when you just buried your wife or your mother or somebody else. Amen. But see, worship is not about you and how you feel. And it's not about the song that's being played. It's about him. And he's still good. He didn't fall off the throne. He he didn't become uh, harsh overnight. He's still good. He's still the savior. He's still the one who bled for you and died for you and took his sin. And he's worthy of your worship. In the midst of your storm. There's a little. I would recommend this book to you. It's called No Graven Image. It's, it's fiction. But I think it's based on Elizabeth Elliot's own experience. You remember Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband. Uh, was it John? Jim. Jim Elliot. Was killed by an indigenous tribe in South America. As a missionary. And she writes a book called No Graven Image. And it's about a missionary, a woman, who gives up family, refuses to get married, and the comforts to minister, and all of her comforts as she leaves America and goes to minister to the Indians of South America. She's trying to reach them, but all of her efforts flounder because of the language barrier. They have a very unique dialect that's kind of like Portuguese and kind of like Spanish but she even though she's learned those two she can't get across to them and she's praying and she's fasting and she's frustrated and we, she can't even communicate the gospel she can only love them and feed them but she can't get the message to them that they need to have a relationship with Jesus and then all of a sudden she meets Pedro and Pedro speaks three languages and the dialect of the Indians and with his help she began learning the tribe's unique language and translating the Bible into their language. And she's starting to see people saved. And she's starting to see people come to God. And she's starting to see people uh, change their life and have a relationship with God. And everything is going well until Pedro falls ill with an infected leg. And Margaret, who is a nurse by training, gives him a penicillin shot that he has an allergic reaction to and dies. And the tribe kicks her out because you killed Pedro. And they take all of her Bible translations and they tear them up and they throw them in the river. And they say, get out. All of her sacrifice, all of her work ends in nothing. This is what she says in the book. She says, now in the clear light of day, I see that 
If God is merely my accomplice, he had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he is sovereign, then he freed me. If he is God, then he is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere except in the will of God. His will is infinitely, immeasurably, and unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. The graven image that was shattered was the God of her plans. She was going to go there and she was going to have revival and build a church and it was going to be successful, right? And she was going to gain notoriety all over the world. You know, some of us are in the church. We're seeking all the same things that the world does. We're just using the church to get there. We had not changed our values. We still want to be rich, wealthy, and have status. We just want to use God to get there. He's our accomplice. He's not our sovereign. He's our accomplice. He's our butler. He's our celestial Santa Claus. We don't pray much until we get in trouble or it's Christmas time. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I mean, you know, talking about me. See, the God of her plans, the God who always acted the way she thought he should. He was a God who supported her plans, that her plans and his plans ran parallel to one another, never perpendicular. And that he was going to do A, B, C, D, just like she had planned it out in her mind. That is a God of your own creation. A counterfeit God. Such a God is really just a projection of your own plans and your own self-image. See, if God is our accomplice, someone whom we relate to as long as he's doing what we want, but if he does something else, we want to fire him or unfriend him. As we would a personal assistant who was insubordinate or incompetent. See, if God is your assistant, your God is too small. If God is your personal assistant, he is too small. If he's somebody you run to only in trouble, your God is too small. He's too small. He's not the God of the Bible. See, you can never have peace when God is your accomplice because you're always worrying. How could he do that? How could he let that happen? How could this happen to me? You know what's interesting? I have people who are in trouble all the time and they say, how could this happen to me? This isn't fair. And then they start recounting their resume. I pay my tithes and I've been faithful. Yeah, I'm in the choir. I come early for prayer. How could he do this? You know what's interesting? At least be consistent because you don't say that when blessings come. At least be consistent because if you're consistent, you go, I don't deserve this. Why did God bless me? But that's not what we say. We say, you know what? It's about time. It's about time. I've been praying. I've been waiting. It's about time. You don't deserve anything. All of us deserve to be lost and go to hell. That's what we deserve. But God said, I'm not going to have it. I'm going to come down, roll myself in flesh, and die for you and give you something you can't earn and you're not good enough for. (laughs) Yeah. See, when you start giving him your resume... Well, I never had a liquor in my life, and I never did A, B, C, D, and I didn't. I waited till I was married, till I got jiggy with it. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, go look it up. Never yeah, I never. You know, you know what he says when you start giving him that resume? 
He said, um, try never having a selfish thought for eternity. Try only thinking of how you can save others who don't even love you, who mock you, ridicule you, reject you. Try that for eternity. Then come talk to me about how holy and righteous you are. That's why the Old Testament writer says, hey, our good deeds are filthy rags. They're filthy minstrel rags is the direct translation. You better believe it. Because when you put that up in front of him and said, this, this is leverage. This is what you ought to do because of all that I've done. He's like, where were you when I found you? Let me, let, me, let me get this right. You had it all together when you came to that altar the first time. Let me, let me get it right. And you were holy and you had you checked all the boxes and that's why I filled you with the Holy Ghost, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. You wasn't even looking for him, some of you. I wasn't looking for him. You guys here from Celebrate Recovery, right? Some of you coming out of drugs. I was addicted to methamphetamine 30 years ago, bro. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. You better believe it. I wasn't looking for him. I'll tell you the story real quick. I'd been on a three-day binge. I'd been awake for three days, but I always kept a job. I'd never a junkie. You know what I mean? I didn't steal. I didn't, I didn't do that stuff. I kept a job. I don't know how I kept a job. I went in high a lot, but I kept a job. Good thing is meth- methamphetamine may make you a good worker. <laughs> yeah, I work everybody if you're high. Y'all can say amen. It's all right. And uh, I'd been up three days, and I knew I had to get some sleep, and I wouldn't be any good at work. And so I tried to go to sleep, and I frustrated, paranoid, you know, sweaty, nasty, hadn't bathed. And so my mother had some anxiety problems and she'd give me some Elevel, which is a very old medication. I put a couple of them in my hand and popped them in, laid down for about 30 minutes, still nothing. Couldn't, couldn't sleep, couldn't, couldn't do nothing. So I went back in there. I was frustrated. I just poured some of the bottle out of my hand. I don't know how many I put in my mouth. I went off to sleep. When I woke up, the bed was soaking wet. And I woke up in a panic. Now, I don't know if I was dying. I don't know if I was paranoid. But as far as I'm concerned... Perception is reality. I was dying. Okay? I didn't know if somebody throw a cold cup of water on me or a bucket of water, but the bed was soaking wet. I'd sweat it wet. And I couldn't catch my breath. And I was going. <laughs> my heart beat out of my chest. Man, I'm afraid. But you know what? Thank God for my Pentecostal past. Thank God that I wasn't raised in a church that told me once saved, always saved. Because I'd have had no motivation to change. I was just go, you know what? I'm good. But I knew I was lost. I knew I was lost. Right? And so I eased off that bed when I could. And I said, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll turn my life around. I'll turn my life around. I pulled back up in the covers, went to sleep, slept like a baby. Two weeks later, I hadn't really done anything in two weeks. 
I come home, I worked at night. I came home and I got in the shower and boy, he was there. <laughs> he said, all right, brother, you made a promise to me. You said you'd turn this around. He said, That's a, today's the day. I, I crumbled in the bottom of that shower and I repented of my sins. And God miraculously filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Listen, nobody knocked my door. Nobody invited me to church. I was as lost as a goose. I didn't have any Christians around me. But God came and found me where I was and said, hey, I can use you. You're not used up. I'm not embarrassed of where you've been. I'm not embarrassed of what you've done. I can wash that. I can clean that. I can give you a purpose. I can use your testimony. I can take that story back from the enemy and redeem it and make it my testimony of my grace and my goodness. Hallelujah. See, when God shows up finally, he never answers Job's questions. He offers no explanations for Job's loss. The demand for explanation is ultimately, listen to me very carefully here, the demand for explanation, the question why, is ultimately an attempt for control. This is what I learned after Layla's death. God can't tell Job why because God's explanation will lead to an ultimatum. Listen very carefully. Listen, I'm, simple, I'm oversimplifying. The explanation would be so tough for you to grasp. There's so many moving parts that that's a lot of the reason. But I'm going to simplify. So don't... Don't suggest that if you've got an explanation, it would sound like this. But I'm just going to simplify. Suppose God does show up and tell Job that he did this to help build character and prove Satan a liar and give him a greater insight into his glory. Job could say, listen, my kids' lives are not worth character. I reject your reasons and I refuse to serve you. Or on the other hand, let's say, suppose come, God comes down and said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a book in the Bible. I'm going to encourage millions of believers through your story. And I'm going to give you double what you lost in kids and money and status and power. And Job says, fine, under those circumstances, I'll continue to serve you. What do both of Job's potential responses reveal? It's about Job, not God. God wrecked me with that revelation because <laughs> my questions were an attempt at control. I, they were innocent attempts at control, but they were attempts at control. It was an attempt to bring a sovereign, transcendent God down to my level and explain to me what's going on with these deaths and with how my ministry goes and how his ministry goes. And why don't I have this? Why don't they have that? God doesn't want to be loved for what he does or fails to do on your behalf. If we use our faithfulness and our devotion and our sacrifice as a defense against suffering, we prove the real motive behind our service. It's about us. I come here because I want to be blessed. I come here because I expect those promises to come to pass in my life. Listen, all of that is icing on the cake. You didn't deserve to be saved. If you get anything else besides salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you need to go, I don't deserve this. I don't know why he blesses me, but he keeps doing it. I'm surprised every time he does. 
Because I know me. I know what I think. I know how I failed morally. I know I've had bad thoughts. I know I'm a sinner. That's why you have Paul. Paul's not like us. Paul is the chief apostle, but he said, I'm the chief of sinners. He said, because my sin is proportionate to my knowledge. And I have more knowledge than y'all, and I'm still a sinner. But see, we're more interested in reputation than truth. We want people to think well of us. God knows you, even though Sister Susie don't know. God knows. So you may fool Sister Susie, and you may pull it over on Pastor or whoever else you're trying to impress, but God already knows who you are. Why, why, why are we into image? That's the world stuff. The world is into image. It's superficial. Why are we in the image? It's time for some of us to get real and say, you know what? I have not arrived. I still need to grow. I still got some weakness. I still need to be in that altar just like the new convert. I need to be in that altar just like the one who's trying to break habits. I still need to grow. I haven't arrived yet. I still need a move of God in my life. I need the Holy Ghost. I need to be renewed in the Holy Ghost. Yes, I do. See, suffering teaches us whether we love God for himself or we love God for what he does. There are two things. God has intrinsic value. That means he's valuable regardless of what he does. Most of us think God has an instrumental value. When he does stuff we like, woo! Shakamo, shak, face in the ficus. My God. Woo! I'm not against that. Don't get me wrong. But I would like to see that when he does something you don't like. Because he hadn't changed. You just don't like it. He's still good. He's still on the throne. He's still almighty. He's still the healer. But he's waiting on you to realize, I don't serve you instrumentally. You have a value that's separate from my circumstances. And I worship you in my trouble, in my shame, in my suffering, just like I do when everything's going well. Let me, I don't know. Am I okay? I'll be done in 10 minutes. Is that all right? I don't know how much time y'all get out, but I'll, I'll, I'll be done. I promise. So I don't know what your suffering means. I don't know what's going on. I can't, I can't tell you that. And people who tell you they do, be leery of them. Hear me. I know we like prophets, and I like prophets too. But a lot of times, this is my experience, okay? And I'm not denigrating the prophetic ministry, Okay? Hear that, hear that first. But a lot of prophetic ministry, their rhema word, their gift, is not filtered through the Logos word. But guess what? They come and tell you, all is going to be well. Everything's going to turn out. We eat that up, don't we? You don't want Jeremiah to come by your house, though, do you? See, I ain't David. 
I don't have all those stories of victory, and I didn't kill the giant. And I don't. I can't come here and tell you about how God's used me to lay hands on the dead and they raise and all that stuff. I'm Jeremiah. I've been thrown in the pit. And he said, you know who you are? You're the guy that stands next to the dead people and try to comfort them. He said, I got other people to do all that other stuff. I don't want to be Jeremiah. You're too bad. Nobody else does either, so it's you. I don't want to be Noah. I don't, I don't want to preach 120 years and save eight souls. And God said he was faithful in his generation. He said, you try preaching when there's that much violence and everybody is turned against him. You try and see if you just keep your family saved for 120 years. You think he's a failure because he doesn't measure up to church growth standards today? So here's what it doesn't mean. I don't know what it does mean, but here's what it doesn't mean. It can't mean he doesn't love you. It can't mean he doesn't love you. I don't care how bad it is. Because he loved Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he let him suffer. The most difficult suffering. He loved Job. He was proud of Job. He said, he's blameless and upright. He cleaved to that which is good and eschewed that which is evil. Man, ain't nobody like him. But he let him suffer. So it can't mean he doesn't love me. And here's the second thing. And this is what you better get out of this message. It can't be about my sin. See, Job's friends and Job's wife, they had this very simplistic view of God. That there's a one-to-one correspondence between negative events and bad behavior. And a one-to-one correspondence between right behavior and blessing. Even the disciples, when they were with Jesus, they still had this thought about God. Remember? Remember? He said it's hard for a rich man to get through to the kingdom, right? They said, who then can be saved? They're the blessed ones. They have the favor of God. God said, you got it wrong. They don't have the favor of God. You, you think because everything's going good for you that God condones your behavior. You think because you got a good business or you got money in the bank that God, God's got to be happy with me. No. No. You, that's worldly thinking. It don't even take any faith to think that way. It, it can't be because of my sin. You know why? Because Jesus never sinned and yet he suffered. It wasn't about Job's sin. He said he's blameless and upright. There's nobody like him. But he suffered. Be weary of people who say, well, it's because you ain't praying like you should. Be wary of people who think that there's a one-to-one correspondence between blessing and good and evil and sin. It's simplistic. It's archaic. God doesn't function this way. He, it rains on the just and the unjust. He said, I will bless whom I'll bless. He said, I bless the people who don't deserve it. I bless the people who who don't even know me. I still bless them. He said, and sometimes I thump some very good people. Some sweet people. I thump them just to teach them, to disabuse them of this very archaic thinking about God. Watch this. 
Job 42, 7 and 8. I'm trying to finish. After the Lord has spoken the previous words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the ten of mine, my wrath is kindled against you. Hear me clear. This is God speaking. This ain't the pastor, the preacher. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me the thing that is right. That's why I told you to be careful of those people who give simplistic answers to complex situations. Because that's what they did. He said, you had to sin. God doesn't function like you think he does. If you was doing right, you'd be blessed. No, 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 no. It rains on the just and the unjust. And my four-year-old great-niece, who is like a daughter to me, my sister-in-law, was the first person who ever believed in my ministry. She died of ALS in 2009. That's her grandbaby that she never saw. And I could have never done ministry without my sister-in-law because my sister-in-law kept my kids when I traveled as an evangelist. And so I take those, you say, well, great niece. That's not close enough. They're like my babies. I held her in my arms and I prayed the prayer of faith over her. She expired in front of me. There were, there were four ministers in the house when she died. And her mother said, I want y'all there because... And the whole week, I can't tell them that I've had a dream that she's going to die because we're all praying for healing, and I'm still praying for healing, even though I know what God has spoken to me. And I'm in the house day and night for four days. We stay there. And she had four ministers in that house, and she said, when she dies, I want you to go in there and lay hands on her. I believe God can raise her up. And I believe that too. Don't get me wrong. But when she died, the Lord spoke to me. He said, you ain't me, brother. He said, when I called Lazarus forth, there wasn't no choice. He said, you ain't me. He said, listen, where she is, if you say, come forth, she's going to look at me, and I'm going to say, you make the decision, sis, because you can see both worlds from where you are. I'm not Jesus, you understand? I'm just his ambassador. I'm not the word made flesh. And I told her mama, I took her mama aside, I said, I'll pray, I'll do whatever you want done because you've lost your baby. And my nephew lost her, his daughter. I said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But I said, here's what you got to understand. We could go and pray. But after we finish praying, even the prayer of faith, God's going to turn to Layla from where she is and say, what do you want to do? You want to go back? You want to stay here? That'll be her choice. And she said, under those circumstances, I don't want you to pray. And finally, finally, I didn't ever told them. Now, they don't know this. This is the first time I've ever told them that I knew that she was going to pass. Probably a week before she did. See, suffering reveals our motive for sacrifice. God wrecked me with this truth. He gently showed me that even though I thought I was doing it for him, it was still about me. When suffering comes, you take it patiently, relying on the grace of God. Instead of saying, you owe me, but I pay tithes, but I, I sing, and I worship, and I pray. and uh-uh. That is not insulation against a world that's fallen. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. This is not the way he created it, but we brought sin into it. And until he comes again and he remakes it with a new Jerusalem, we're going to have headaches and we're going to have hangnails and we're going to have struggle and we're going to stand beside the casket of people we love. But he's still a good God. And I love him for who he is, not what he does for me. And I wish I could raise everybody from the dead. I wish God would change his mind about what he's going to do in my ministry. But he said, you're Jeremiah. 
Because I said, Lord, after this in 2020, before I had this revelation, I wrote out a letter of resignation to my church. I was done. It was burnt out. God's not using me. God's not working through me. All these other people got the gift of faith. I don't have it. Everybody else got the gift of miracles. I ain't got it. And so I wrote out a letter of resignation. I didn't give it to anybody, but I wrote it out. And so after God gave me this sermon and this revelation in May of 2020, right during the pandemic, I was, he said, Brent, had you handed that resignation into your board, he said, you would have proved what Satan believed about Job. Given enough hell, you'll quit. He believes that about all of you. He believes that about all of you. Look, Satan's trying to do two things. He's trying to find your fear or your fee. Your fear or your what you fear even more than being lost. Is that the loss of your marriage? Is that the loss of your money? Is that the loss of your kids? That's your idol. That's your graven image. Because when you can't serve God in the midst of death and you lose out with God because of tragedy, whatever you lost was more important than God. So he wants to find your fee first. He wants, so what is it that you fantasize about? That's your real religion. William Temple said that. What do you fantasize about? That's your real religion. You fantasize about vacations. You fantasize about winning the lottery. Let me tell you something. I know all of you say, first thing I do is pay my tithes. It's easy to spend theoretical money. <laughs> Wait till it's in your pocket. Because if you can't spend the money that's already there, honey, you can't spend the theoretical money. He that is unfaithful in small things is unfaithful in the great things. It's a principle. See, he so he wants to find your fee. He wants to say, what is it that you want more than God? And then he offers that to you. Is that an affair? Is that somebody sexier than your husband or wife? What is that? He's offering. He's going to put it in front. He's going to watch your life. He's going to watch how you. He doesn't know your inner thoughts, but he watches. And when you walk into the grocery store and that woman with tight short shorts on and juicy on her rear and you go, he, he takes note. Mm, I'm going to put more of that in his. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I'm just real. I don't want to offend any of y'all, but that's where we live. Listen, men, men, listen to me. If you're, if you're depending on apostolic women to keep you from lusting, you got to go to work. You got to go to the store. It is not their responsibility. Their modesty is not a replacement for your self-control. My God. If somebody's, if somebody's shin turns you on, that's your problem. It ain't hers. If her elbow turns you on, that's your problem. Is that all right? I didn't mean to pastor. Oh, this is, this is some, some of this stuff is just goofy. You, you only live here where people, you know, dress modestly. I don't. I work out at a gymnasium. I have to do it like this to work out. Come on. 
You better learn to bounce your eyes. And you, 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 you think you can solve this with some preaching, don't you? You, you think, you know, a pastor would just set a standard, set a line. We got to know the reason why you do it. It's not enough to know that you do it. Because I, we can preach in a way that can get you to comply in front of us. But when you get out from under us, you're going to do something else. We don't like duplicity. We want you to either be who you are or embrace truth. One of the two. But don't straddle some fence. All right, I said I'd quit. <laughs> See, Lord, I don't understand why. But you know, you understand. And you have a plan of ultimate wisdom motivated by selfless and sacrificial love. I trust you. Trust and explanations are mutually exclusive. I'll say it again. Trust and explanations are mutually exclusive. You never have to trust what you fully understand. Quit asking. He's going to show up and ask you some stuff you can't answer. He did me. <laughs> and then watch this right here. Job says in 40, 48, must I be condemned so that you might be justified? You know what that is? That's a rhetorical question that points to the cross. Ultimately, for all of us to be justified and declared not guilty, God himself must be condemned on a cross. Next time believe you are suffering unjustly, remember you're saved by a man who was beaten and mocked and cruelly tortured to death and he did not deserve it. He did not deserve it. He did not deserve it. They didn't take his life. He laid it down. Pilate said, don't you know I have the power of life and death? He said, you have no powers given you from above. You see, perspective is power. You need to know some stuff and quit feeling. I'm not against feeling. I thank God for experiential relationship. I had an experience with God. But you know what gets me through the trials? I know that even though I go right and I can't perceive him and I go left and I cannot find him and I go back and he is not there. That when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Hallelujah. Even though I don't understand what's going on and I can't find his address, I know who he is and I know his character. And then eventually I'm coming out of this storm. Job finally says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eyes see you, therefore I loathe myself and abhor myself and repent and dust. He didn't charge God foolishly. What is he saying there? What's he repenting of? The questions. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank God. That'll help me land. Hallelujah. He, he said, I uttered things that were, I didn't understand. He said, they were too wonderful to me. He said, I run my mouth before. I didn't know what I was talking about. You showed up and now I see you. See, the answer to your existential objections and questions is not an explanation. It's the presence of God. He's going to show up. Listen to me. Some of you have lost husbands and some of you have lost wives. And you're starting to learn what it is to, to live by yourself again. And it's, it's scary and it's dangerous and it's difficult, right? And you're afraid at night and you hear creaks. Right? Because there ain't no man to stand up with a gun anymore, right? And you never learned how to use it. 
And so that cat that's meowing at the back of the house, somebody's trying to get in. And so it's scary. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm just playing around, okay? Listen, you're going to find God in your loss in a way you never knew him when y'all were together. He's going to show up to you in your singleness, in your widowhood, in your widower situation, in a way that you never knew him when you were married. And you're going to go, my God, I repent of the questions. I repent of the objections. I repent of what I said. I see you now. I see you in a way I could never see you when I had the comfort. That's why the Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. When my mentor, when the one I looked to was called, then I could see you in your brilliance and glory. Job said, I had an abstract idea of you. I had a vague concept of who you were. But now I've experienced your majesty and wonder and the might of God in a way I don't need an explanation and I don't need vindication. I repent. I retract what I said. I rashly uttered what I did not understand. I repent of my demand for an explanation of vindication. As I see the holiness of the Almighty and the wisdom that made the world, I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God that loves me in spite of my sin and selfishness and inconsistency. Finally, after Job prays for his friends, listen, some of you have had some very bad friends in your time of loss. Now they love you and they're, they're sweet people, but they've caught some stuff and they came to you and they said, well, you know, if you'd have, you'd have prayed a little more, maybe that wouldn't have happened. You know, when, when Joe's friends were silent for seven days, that was when they were his best friends. When they started talking. And we feel like we have to talk because there's a vacuum there, right? No. Oh, because you don't know what God's up to. And don't act like you do. And you've had some, some tough friends who gave you little cliches and little slick explanations for why your heart is broken. But you know what you have to do? When Job turned and prayed for him, God restored everything Job lost. You need to lay your hands on him today and pray. If it's okay with you, Pastor, I want to I do something that I want to pray for you. Is it okay if I pray for you? Okay. I'm done. Come on and stand with me, church. I want to pray for your pastor because I know y'all been in a storm. I know it's your gymnasium. I know your sanctuary is being rebuilt. I know some of your houses have been destroyed. I I was in Lufkin with uh, Jonathan Abdallah. I think he's from this city. I think his dad still lives in this city. They grew up in Brother Cardwell's church, but... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, he told me about it. It had been a two-year ordeal to get his dad's house taken care of. And some of you probably don't have yours fixed. I know pastors is not fully fixed yet. So you've been in a storm. And in those storms, it's easy to say, why? Why is this happening? But God showed me something. And I, I want to I pray for your pastor, okay? And he has a pastor. And I'm not trying to be his pastor, okay? But he's my friend. So the Bible says, the Lord anoints my head with oil, right? 
And this is a, something that a shepherd does. The shepherd would take the oil because the sheep kind of butt. They kind of get scratched and scrapes. And so it has a, primarily it's a medicinal purpose. And so he rubs it in. But I began studying and it has a secondary purpose. The secondary purpose is what happens is while he's rubbing that into that thick fur and his sweaty, grimy hands, he's getting his scent on the sheep. That confuses predators. Because if you're a hunter here, you know that every predator stalks downwind to the sheep. So they hear the bleeding of sheep, but they smell a man. That sheep looks like a meal, but they smell a man of God. (laughs) You understand that? And so, see, I've been through some battles. I've wanted to quit. I've wanted to give up. I've stood in the floor and wept. Until my pillow was wet with tears at the loss of Layla Grace and the others who took their lives that I stood by. And so today, I'm a shepherd. I'm going to put my scent on your pastor. Not because I'm his pastor. But I want, I want him to know that he may look like a meal and he may look vulnerable now in this state. In his transition in his elder years. But when the enemy comes to stalk him. That he may look vulnerable. He may look weak. He may look like he's stressed out. But he's going to smell the scent of a shepherd on him. Hallelujah. And it's going to confuse the enemy. And the enemy's going to turn and run. Because as soon as they smell a man, they're like, it's not worth it. Because I know the shepherd walks softly and carries a big stick. That's why he said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Oh, God, I pray right now for a special anointing and an unction, Lord God. They give him, God, power and anointing, God, to rebuild, Lord, to have revival, God, in multiple cities, to send ministers from this place. God, we believe it, we pray for it, and we ask, God, for the sin of a shepherd on his life. So I don't know where you are this morning, but in a, I just want to make a time of prayer. And I know I preached too long, and I'm so sorry. I promise if you let me come back, I'll be done in 20 minutes. You believe in miracles, right? Good. So if you're struggling today and you got questions, I want you to come meet him face to face. He's here. There are angels in this building. There are angels in this building. And he's here to meet you face to face. And I want you to give him your weakness. Paul said, I will glory in my weakness that the power of God might rest upon me. We don't know how to glory in weakness. We don't know how to glory and try. But Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
when I have tears in my eyes, then he pities me as a father pities his children.
Lord.